AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for September 6, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we have a special guest. We have Troy Hunt here. He's a web security expert, and actually that's the only way I can summarize it. So, uh, Troy, you're joining us from Australia, and uh, please tell us a little bit about what you do, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, well, I, I, I normally use a slightly less self-ingratiating term than uh, web security expert, but. Uh, Look, I, uh, I'm obviously Australian. Uh, I do a lot of uh, online training, so I do a lot of training through sources such as uh, Pluralsight, uh, where I've got a couple of dozen courses on there, mostly teaching developers. I do a lot of uh, travelling and speaking at uh, events around the world. I run security workshops, uh, and I, I build this site. Uh, have I been toned for data breach notifications as well? So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, other than that, I don't do very much. All right. Well, we're glad to have you here. And, you know, I have to share with you, I had the opportunity to visit Australia, and I started looking at the fastest way to get there. And, you know, when I was a kid, we always used to say, you know, when you start digging a deep hole, you'd be digging a hole in China. But I think in reality, from where we sit, if you dig a hole, we're going to come up in Australia. So I think you're on the exact opposite side of the earth from us. <laughs> So, uh, well, it feels like a long way, put it that way. <laughs> yes, uh, and we're glad to have you here. Uh, we have Matt Kaiser in, in the uh, studio here in Bedminster, and uh, welcome, Matt. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be back. And uh, we have Manny Ortiz here, both regulars on the program. Thanks for joining today. I'm not nearly as, uh, as uh, entertaining as uh, Troy Hunt and ha have as many things to my name as Troy, I don't think. But. <laughs> Nor are you as far away. <laughs> And I'm Brian Rexrod, and let's, uh, Troy, let's go to you first. And, uh, you know, first I'd like to learn a little bit about your uh, project, your Have I Been Pwned project. I think this is a really cool idea. So tell us a little about it. Well, look, this is a, a project that I started a few years ago in 2013 after the uh, Adobe data breach, and we had 150-something million accounts uh, exposed in Adobe. And I've been doing a, a bunch of analysis on various data breaches and, and just writing about some of the interesting trends. Uh, so the, the breakdown of password usage, a lot of the passwords uh, were being released in plain text. The, the trends of breaches uh, across individuals. So you'd see the same individuals appear in multiple data breaches and then you could sort of draw conclusions around things like password reuse. And I, I thought, look, it'd be really interesting to, to sort of show people what it looks like when, uh, when they have exposure in multiple places and, and give them a sort of a unified location to do that. So I started building the service out. There's something like five data breaches, and I think a total of about 155 million accounts at the time, which which sounded uh, really, really big. Uh, and but I think by any reasonable measure, it is a lot of data floating around. Mm -hmm. But several years on, it's it's grown significantly. It's about 1.3 billion uh, accounts now, uh, and there's now uh, around about 700,000. Subscribers using the, the free notification service as well, where they get emails when a new data breach gets loaded. So I'm now finding that this site has uh, just attracted a lot of attention. It gets huge volumes of traffic uh, when big incidents happen, and uh, I send a lot of emails to people when their exposure um, uh, pops up in a data breach. All right, very cool. And I'm willing to bet that you're doing a better job at protecting those user accounts than perhaps some of the folks that are uh, that are going in with the uh, the data breaches that uh, that you're providing information on. Well, to, to date, and, uh, you know, partly that's because I I sort of use this really fundamental uh, information security principle, which is you can't lose what you don't have. So I, I certainly don't put passwords or anything like that in the system. Uh, it's just email addresses. Most people know what password they used on a site. There's no point me storing that uh, in a fashion which would ultimately be insecure if I was to, to give people the ability to retrieve it. And, uh, you know, frankly, that's just, just not a risk that, um, that, would, that would be a reasonable thing to take on. So uh, my worst case is, is I lose data, which other people have already lost, uh, but I, I'm hoping that it doesn't come to that either. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you know, you make a very good point. I, I don't know if you would actually intended to make the point, but you're making an effort to not store anything that you don't need to. And I think that's one of the fundamental security principles 
that people need to be looking at today that perhaps wasn't even just a few years ago something that most people would even consider but you know making sure that uh, if you have data that there's purpose for having that data and that it's protected properly yeah it's, and it's you know I, I see this all the time and where I particularly see it is I see a lot of forums that get breached and they lose birth dates and I, I'm looking at this going well why do you need to store people's birth dates, which are then uh, a personally identifiable uh, or, or, or one, more, one component of personally identifiable data, which is often used for purposes like identity verification. Why are you mm -hmm. storing this in order for people to come and talk about cats or, or, or whatever it is? And it, it, it's interesting because people say, well, you know, website's got to capture it because COPPA, the Child Online Protection Act, you know, we've got to verify that you're over 13. Well, okay, verify it and then throw the data away. You know, let's not store this and now have a, another piece of, of information that's sitting there as a repository waiting for someone to come and hack it out. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, I'm not sure to what extent you're aware, but, you know, in the United States with Social Security numbers, you mentioned uh, date of birth. Uh, if you have the location of birth mm -hmm. and the date of birth, you're really down to only four digits remaining Which, in the social security number. That of you of course, is the four numbers that everybody likes to hang around and that validate. Use to validate, right. right. So uh, that's actually, uh, you know, one of the sort of the fallacies around security, social security numbers is that uh, you can actually derive a good portion of that uh, little known fact. So tell me, what kinds of trends have you been seeing in, term, in terms of these data breaches? You mentioned uh, about, you know, password reuse. Are there other things that you've seen that are just really, you know, kind of stand out? One of the interesting things I've seen with, with the trends of breaches themselves is uh, earlier this year, so back in sort of Jan 2016, I was doing uh, a talk at, at conferences around the world, and it was, I, I titled the talk, What I Learned from uh, 220 Million Breached Records because I had about 220 million in the system earlier on. As I just mentioned, uh, I've got about 1.3 billion in there now, which is mm -hmm. somewhat of an increase. Uh, and the, the, the trend that we're finding at the moment is that there's a lot of uh, legacy data breaches, so data breaches that happened around the 2012 era, now coming to light that are numbering in the tens or even hundreds of millions of records. So there's LinkedIn, there's MySpace, there was Dropbox last week with 68 million. And it's, it's just a really interesting thing to note that these happened many years ago. So regardless of, of how good the security position of those organisations is today, uh, it doesn't change the fact that there was this data obtained back in the 2012 or, or earlier sort of era. And it's now out there. And it, it sort of makes you wonder how many other cases are there like this right now where there are mm -hmm. really large, well-known assets on the web and they've got tens of millions or hundreds of millions of accounts floating around because they were compromised years ago. Yeah, it's actually, it's quite interesting. I wasn't aware of that and it's uh, uh, very pertinent. You know, if it, I guess it, it's almost to the point where if you set up an account with an organization, you almost have to assume it's going to be breached, you know, lose those credentials. And, um, you know, just be kind of be prepared ahead of time, because as you're, you're pointing out, it may be years before you find out that it has been breached. And then you may never know it's, if it's been breached or you may just feel the uh, ramifications of it. And, you know, in terms of uh, some sort of fraud. Well, that's something I, I was going to ask is actually, Troy, do you see people or organizations doing a good job of making sure that those compromised customers force a password change, that they actually do take action? I mean, is anybody collecting metrics around that and comparing one breach to another breach? Well, I guess it depends on the context of the organization. So, look, I mean, last week was the Dropbox incident, and when they learned that data was floating around, they forced password resets, but the difficulty is the mechanics of how these resets often work. So in the Dropbox case, uh, my wife was actually... One of the people in there, in fact, both my wife and I were in there, but my wife had a password which dated back to uh, before about mid-2012 when they believed the incident occurred. So they forced a password reset on her, but what that meant was the next time she logged on, with the credentials that were in the data breach, she could set mm. a new password. Now, of course, the risk there is that if someone actually has that data breach and they're able to crack the passwords, which, which frankly would have been a bit tricky because they're all stored as, as bcrypt. Uh, they, in fact, there was a split. They're either bcrypt, uh, which is a nice sort of slow hashing algorithm, quite resilient to cracking if you have a decent password, <laughs> which, which unfortunately most people don't. But my wife did. She has a password manager, so she had a, a very strong password. 
So a bunch of them were B-crypt, a bunch of them were SHA-1, uh, but they were salted and they didn't have the salt uh, with the data breach. So fortunately, the accounts were pretty well protected. But this premise is something that we often see where an organisation will say, okay, now you've got to reset your password, but the credentials in the breach are valid until you do that. So I think it's a little bit of a workflow challenge there as well for organisations about how do they make sure that at-risk passwords get recycled, but they sort of don't have this exposure where someone who has the credentials can break into the account until that happens. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And um, I guess I'll just add to that, you know, one of the sort of the common threads between all of these things, and I think, uh, you know, Brian Krebs kind of made this point as a part of his, his book, uh, Spam Nation, was that in almost every case, your opportunity to reset passwords is through your email account. So if you've breached or lost credentials associated with your email account, it's actually kind of a double whammy because it's, you know, basically that uh, that account has a lot of power over a lot of your a lot of your other accounts. That's true, but in the cases where it's not, that also provides you that single point of reset. So instead mm -hmm. of you know forcing a reset and accepting that old credential one last time, you could still send an email that says, "We know you've been reset. Mm -hmm. We are hoping." Fingers crossed, you still control this email address, mm -hmm. and that's one other option. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, all right, very good. Let's, um, you know, pass this over to Manny here a little bit, and I guess, uh, you know, we've had a few articles about some, you know, sort of breaching the, the uh, sneaker net, right. so, so to speak. That's so right. this sounds yeah. like it's a uh, kind of a cool new. Yeah, so this is this is definitely a new uh, sort of a new approach to that you know that whole you know uh, air gapped mm -hmm. you know reaching the air gap network. Um, so this this particular story goes into um, this research team at uh, at BGU's, which is Ben Gurion University, their uh, their cybersecurity research center, and they basically what they did was they were able to create malware and put it on an unmodified USB stick, which they didn't actually do anything to modify the USB mm -hmm. to give it any kind of abilities that a normal USB stick wouldn't have or, mm -hmm. or anything that's plugged in via USB, and loaded uh, some software on there, which they actually call USB with two E's at the end. And basically what it allows them to do is it allows them to, via RF signals, um, that are produced by the by the USB device, pick it up via via a receiver um, up to 30 feet away um, and uh, up to speeds of 80 bytes per second, which isn't that's not bad for it's it's air gap. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So you're talking about air gaps, but but you know for for the purposes that you know that you would need this for, right? So for being able to pull off like let's say keys or passwords. Mm -hmm. You know, 80 bytes a second is sufficient enough to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So the speed is not really an issue. It's not really meant to be, you know, you don't really need it to be any faster than that to be able to get what you actually need from it. But the point is, is that you can do it from distances away. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, it's, it's, it's via an unmodified USB device. So, mm -hmm. so in essence, they're basically picking up these, these um, it's electromagnetic emissions from the data bus on the USB. Um, and that's what they're doing on the, on the receiving side is actually picking up those emissions and the, the, the malware on the, on the stick itself. So obviously, you know, the first thing, you still have to get this, get the, the malware there, yeah. get, the, get mm -hmm. the stick into the, into the location. But once you've done that, Mm -hmm. You've got you've in essence can break and now. Of course, path. you still have to be close enough, right? So mm -hmm. you still have to be close enough to to receive the signals, um, but you can obviously receive it. So this this software that they've written is able to basically transmit um, these RF signals that are picked up on the receiving end. Mm -hmm. That's able to um, give you that that um, the, the data on the other side. So yeah. picking up on stuff that you've... It's pretty so, fascinating. It's a, it's a, it, I mean, it, it, it can only get worse from here, right? Until <laughs> exactly. And, and th these, are the same, these are the same guys, again, like you said before, these are the yeah. same guys that also did the ones with the computer fan yep. right? um, and the computer hard drive. Yeah. So they're the same guys that you know, were able to do the same sort of thing with the air gap using other devices that normally get plugged into machines today. This, and this example is considerably faster, and just to put it in perspective, I think when modems kind of became right. um, obsolete, 
we're up to on the order of about 64 baud modems, which is, you know, that's transition. It's a little less than bits per second, but ultimately it comes down to a situation. I mean, this is well past that on the order of about 10 times faster. And uh, we were able to survive with modems way back when. So that is a significant data rate. Um, it would take a long time to, uh, you know, you, you'd have to be able to root out which data you really need out of a system or something like that if you were an attacker. Right. And as you pointed out, passwords or keys may be, uh, you know, a really good thing to go after and relatively easy to find um, yep. compared to perhaps the data itself. So this is... Um, this is actually, I think, more significant than some of the other findings. Although, as you point out, you have to get the malware on there. But, the, you know, there are definitely examples where that's been done. Well, that's what's bugging me about it is that you're saying you've got an air gap, but then you're saying mm -hmm. that I'm still going to stick a USB stick into something. Is it still an air gap at you that point? You still have to get software in and out of an air gap system. There's no other way around it. Mm -hmm. And if you're right. doing proper patch management, it means you have to do it frequently. So uh, there okay. is no, I mean, you have to have a means to get in there. Now, you could argue that maybe a USB stick is not the right way to do it, but it gets kind of, uh, I'll say, you know, burdensome or tedious to have to burn a CD every or time something you every time something. you want to do it. And yeah. I, I'm not so sure that uh, you couldn't even do kind of the same thing. I mean, I guess you probably couldn't do this particular USB attack using a, a CD, but they certainly have... The, the boot structure that could cause some of the similar kinds of problems. I also kind of wonder how, how reliable it is, because you were saying that this seems to work with any USB stick. Right. And I guess, you know, there are slight differences in how a USB stick is designed, and neither, none of them are designed with, like, a built-in radio. Right. So the reproducibility of, of what kind of signals you're going to get out when you mm -hmm. modulate whatever you're modulating. Right. Well, I have my doubts. I should probably read the yeah. paper, but yeah. I'm interested. Yeah, there are always cases like that. You know, the, the classic case that we used to have to deal with years ago were the CRTs. The CRTs were mm -hmm. high-voltage yeah. thing, you know, modulating, and so it was possible to, you know, through RF, pick up oh, those signals yeah. and be able to see what was on, on the screen yep. from a remote place. And uh, this looks like it's, you know, to the point where as speeds go up, frequencies go up, and the possibility of being able to have that propagate, you know, leak through a small hole, um, because, hmm. you know, it's all wavelength-based, right? You could leak through it. Anyway, right. I, I Plus, the other thing that they went into as well was some of the mitigating factors for, yeah. for, for this. And obviously, if you're in an environment where you need to have an air-gapped, you know, environment, mm -hmm. then some of these things you probably need to keep in mind, you know, when putting together an environment like this, like, you know, creating these RF-free uh, RF zones mm -hmm. um, and also insulation, better insulation in the surrounding area to try mm -hmm. to block some of that. When they say RF-free zone, do they mean anechoic chamber or they mean something a little less strict? Well, I think when, when uh, the way I took it was, <laughs> the way I took it was that the, the RF, when they, what they were saying was that they would, I guess, periodically check to make sure that no one within that area had any kind of RF. Uh, okay. That's that's a little bit of work. Yeah. But then the funny side of that is if you're going to completely wipe out the, the RF in an area, that actually increases your chances of getting data across if you do succeed because right. there's no noise. Right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so, Troy, you're chuckling a little bit here. What are your thoughts? It, it's, it's just a slippery slope, isn't it? Just sort of move the ball along to the, to the next thing. And I, I, I laughed a little bit about the CD because, you know, look, this is another mechanical device that's uh, spinning and, and emitting, if it's not sound, then radio frequencies or things like that. So it all just kind of moves from one to the other. And when we, when we look at some of these uh, really sort of bleeding-edge techniques for jumping air gaps, uh, you know, we've seen other things with, um, with, with X-rays and, and other radio frequencies as well. I just... Like on the one hand, I'm just terrified about how broken everything is, uh, and then on the other hand, you know, sort of reality sets back in. I go, there's a lot of people out there who are actually going to be able to read the RF frequencies off my USB device in just about any situation. They've got to really, really want my stuff, and they're probably going to find other ways to do it by that time as well. Yeah, I, well, I think you're absolutely right. This this is an example, and all of these examples that were published by these researchers are ones where if somebody had a really, you know, they're really determined to try to learn something about what is taking place in an air-gapped environment. But generally speaking, those air-gapped environments are the ones that we're most concerned about. Um, you know, the industrial control systems, power systems, and uh, and, you know, 
systems that are you know processing classified information. And so um, your point is well taken. I guess my final quip on this thing is, the, what is the irony that we're having so much trouble getting Wi-Fi to work, and at the same time, USB devices could possibly be the leak. I don't, it's, it just doesn't seem right. All right, so uh, next story here. Matt, we'll go back to you, and um, this is, you know, Maybe people just need more training. So tell us, tell us about this. Okay, so this is this is one of those disheartening stories yeah. that we have to you know bring out every once in a while. Uh, research done at the Friedrich Alexander University of Erlangen Nuremberg in Germany did some research to see at what level people would respond to phishing mm -hmm. and whether or not they would be fooled by it, why they would click, and in what situations they would click. So they had 1,700 test subjects, pretty good test set. Mm -hmm. uh, and they sent them fake emails from fake accounts. Some actually were emails, and actually some were Facebook messages. And the first set was a message that would say, for example, Brian, I have a message for you. It would use your first name, it would address mm -hmm. you, and then send, say, you, you should probably click on this for some mm -hmm. reason. The second set- I mean, Immediately suspicious when I get an email that says Brian at the beginning. Because usually they just, you know, if it's somebody that's really authoritative and telling me to do something, there's no, there's no introduction <laughs> like that. Dear but. sir. Oh, well, now I'm excited. And it's more like, get this done now. Right. <laughs> hey, ding Go dong. Ahead. I don't Sorry. care who you are. You're doing this. All right, that's pretty good. We'll send that to the, the Germany guys and see how their yeah. response comes back. Um, but the second set was a set without the name, but referencing a recent New Year's party, which was timely because this had just happened maybe a week or two after New Year's. Mm -hmm. And they would say, hey, some photos from you from that party, what a fun time we had, click here to see them. And they compared to see what was successful. So the first name one actually got a 50% click rate on the email and 37 on Facebook. Not too shabby. And these are people who were aware that, you know, they all took a, um, a questionnaire at the end and say, were you aware this is a possibility? Mm -hmm. Why did you click? And most, for the most part, people were aware, but they gave reasons like, uh, no, I didn't click, mm. which is funny because when you went to the website, it logged that you clicked. <laughs> uh, so some people are liars, but we get some of those. Or didn't realize they clicked. Or they didn't realize, they, they, didn't realize they, they might not even remember that they yeah. clicked. That's, it might even that, suggest that 70% of those people don't remember what they did on New Year's. That's right. <laughs> That's two weeks after New Year's. I'm impressed. That's a big old period of gone. Yeah, I keep um, going. So the other set, 20% of email failed on the, you know, without your name, but surprisingly, 42% on Facebook did. Wow. So these were fake Facebook accounts, I guess, with mm -hmm. enough background to convince somebody who was casually that they, maybe they were at the party. Who knows? Mm -hmm. um, so it's pretty interesting. It's a little disheartening to know that around 56% in the highest end case, which was email with your name, mm -hmm. would still click through, even though they, they knew they shouldn't. And the reasons that were given were mostly curiosity. Mm -hmm. They just wanted to know what was on the other side of it, even though mm -hmm. they'd been warned repeatedly, this is a thing. So mm -hmm. I know that we have our own internal security awareness and we try and teach people, you know, don't click things that aren't from people you, you don't know mm -hmm. uh, or, even, or even suspicious, think about it. Hover over the mouse, the mouse over the link, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but this seems to suggest that it's really not that effective. Well, now, is this a case where did they try sort of a control group and a trained group, or did they do any sort of comparison like that? I don't believe they had a, a control group, but they had a reasonably large sample set. So, okay. I mean, But this was a group that they had given training to suggest, you know, you really should be careful about what you click on. You know, that's I, a good I'm question. Kinda, I'm kind of curious what the difference, because I know our statistics, I'm not going to say what they are, but I know our statistics for our tests mm -hmm. have been quite a bit lower, okay. which suggests perhaps that a training program is effective, but it's not going to be perfect. There are always, you know, there's still going to be folks that are going to be focused, so focused on the moment, mm -hmm. not, you know, kind of realizing what the training. So I hope I'm getting this right, but I believe these are people who are aware a study was being done, mm -hmm. but they had not received explicit training beforehand. Right, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, very interesting. Now, uh, Troy, I'm kind of curious on your opinion on this. Have you had any uh, experience in you know, the effectiveness on training? What are your thoughts? Yeah, actually, I, I uh, wrote a social engineering course earlier this year, and, and a lot of it uh, did come down to fishing and the effectiveness of, of training. And one of the, the really interesting things with security training is that there's, there's good training and bad training. <laughs> and the, the training that we often see in, in many sort of very corporate environments is uh, once a year, you will uh, you'll sit there, you'll watch this video, you'll do this training, you'll answer some questions, and then you'll be good. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and the problem is, is that people then walk away, and the, the whole thing goes out the window 
pretty quickly. We also see things like uh, security posters. See, a lot of organisations will have security posters up. Uh, I remember seeing many in various organisations myself. And it will be, you know, use strong passwords. Uh, if Mary asks to borrow your password, don't give Mary your password. <laughs> Stuff like this. <laughs> and the posters very quickly become white noise. And it's just sort of, you know, it's, it's decoration on the kitchen wall somewhere. I really mm-hmm. like the, the ideas of doing uh, active, ongoing, uh, interactive training using services that will do things like mount phishing attacks uh, on your organization and then track who actually clicks it. So who opens the email, who clicks the link, who opens the document, who enters their credentials into the phishing portal. And you run these things on an ongoing basis and you collect metrics on it. And uh, in some organizations, they're either even uh, incentivizing people uh, when, they, when they have a good year. I, I don't think you can necessarily punish them <laughs> when they don't, but you can add incentives to the process and, and actually gamify it uh, a little bit. I think that sort of thing where it's actually uh, engaging is, is a, a far more effective proposition than just the sort of traditional annual uh, checkbox. Yeah, I think you've hit it right on the head in a number of respects. I think uh, you, you mentioned gamification. I think that's an awesome way to you know, bring a little entertainment to work almost and um, you know, perhaps make a little game out of answering questions and uh, getting you know, people more acclimated to not just you know, getting the sort of the, you know, be careful what you click on, but uh, providing some exercises on you know, what things you should be concerned about, you know, some real examples. You know, don't click on this, click on that type of thing and uh, really make it a little bit of a challenge for folks. So I think you hit, certainly hit that right on the head. And um, it, there certainly needs to be a lot more repetitive than the uh, than just the annual um, sort of review activity. Engaging folks uh, a lot more actively, definitely for sure. What you, you know what? The actually the most uh, um, impressive thing I thought about this story was uh, was Matt's pronunciation of the of the university. <laughs> I, um, How much did you practice that? I didn't actually. <laughs> no? I, I do. I did take a little bit of German in high school. So um, ah, well, yeah, it shows. So I, can do it it shows. Yeah. I was like, wow, look at. <laughs> so Troy, you know, there, I, I'm kind of interested in the uh, the notion. I think what we've really talked about here is sort of user education. You're an email user, you know, you get some, something that's prompting you to click on something or open a file. But what about developer education? Is, you know, I haven't heard a whole lot about developer education in the, sort of in the mass media, but what are your, what are your thoughts? How important is it? Well, I mean, you, you see a lot in the mass media about events that happen when there isn't developer training. <laughs> I think we've just been talking about some of those. So, I mean, this is close to my heart because this is what, yeah, most of what I do, most of the, the, the courses I write, most of the, the speaking and training I do is, is around developer training. So I, I have a vested interest, but to my mind, when you look at the way these security breaches are happening, they are really, really, really heavily orientated towards flaws in software. So we're still seeing SQL injection, for example, uh, being enormously prevalent in risks. We're seeing it particularly... Uh, recently in a lot of the data breaches that have come out, there have been SQL injection flaws in popular forum software. And these are flaws that are being baked in by developers. They're writing code that's vulnerable in the first place. And uh, what I've found is that very frequently developers are just not familiar with these patterns. They, they, they may be conscious that there is this thing called SQL injection, for example, but they, they're often not aware of, of how it's exploited and they're often not aware mm-hmm. of what the impact is uh, when it goes wrong. And the other thing that's interesting with developer training is that this is sort of, it's about the most cost-effective thing you can do security-wise because they get to use this this investment over and over and over again. So you train developers and then they go and they build multiple software products. You get to impact them at a phase of the project where it's it's most effective to invest. We want to try and get security right as early on as possible in the life cycle. We don't want to wait until uh, software is being tested or, or, God forbid, software goes live and now we don't actually have the right security controls in place. Things get really, really expensive when you realise that software is vulnerable. So, yeah, training sort of moves that risk much further forward in the project life cycle. It moves it to a place where you get to uh, reinvest it uh, and it is an awful lot cheaper than, than a lot of the, uh, the cost that we tend to incur with security, particularly when it comes to... Uh, very expensive devices and products. 
which are still good things, but you don't want to have them as your sole point of failure as well. So I think developer training is absolutely essential, and uh, as I said, clearly based on the headlines alone, we're not doing enough of it. Actually, you make some really good points there. I think the um, you know the developer education is really important. That you know, as you point out, most of the really big data breaches are ultimately associated with flaws in the uh, platforms that are used to store that data. And uh, there may have been a stepping stone along the way to perhaps get there, but uh, ultimately it comes down to the security of the platform that's, uh, that's housing that data, having you know, su sufficient um, scrutiny around the user interfaces to prevent things like SQL injection, cross-site scripting, that sort of thing. You know, one thing I would throw into the mix, um, I think both of these are important. Mm -hmm. I would almost throw a third aspect in, which is admin training. Mm -hmm. Because all the work that you've done to secure your software can be undone with configuration mistakes and mm -hmm. mishaps like that. You know, someone deploys a completely hardened box, but if you put it on the internet and the default password is still the default password, it doesn't really matter mm -hmm. you know, how much you've done to prevent SQL injection and cross-site scripting. People can still walk in and, and undo mm -hmm. all of that. Yep. Yeah. So excellence in operations and uh, making sure the platform itself is secured, patched, mm -hmm. software patching as, as well, absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think today, this is you know, obviously my opinion, but it feels like today a lot of the, the developer and admin training today, I, I think a good percentage of it is, is like out of the box, you know, like testing tools. Mm -hmm. So, hey, I, I put something together, let me just take the thing off the shelf, run it through, I'll run my, my program through this program that basically tells me what I've got wrong potentially in my code. Mm -hmm. And whatever that spits out, if, as long as I can get that thing to light up all green, I'm good to go. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, my, but we all know those things are only so far effective. Yeah. Well. So that, that kind of brings me up to, to, to perhaps a little bit of a tangent from the original topic here, but I think perhaps something we can dive into a little bit more. That is, my personal feeling is that when you have to be concerned about user awareness of security and you have to be concerned about developer education, developer education perhaps is more debatable, but in my opinion, that's kind of a flaw in the technology itself. That is, we really have not matured the technology to the point where end users reading email don't have to be concerned about what that email is going to do to their computer. It, the, uh, the system should be in a position to protect itself from things that... Well, I, like I would that. turn it around and say, um, sure, you, we could push for that, um, but you still have the situation where a user voluntarily gives up their username and password. And there's no technical flaw in that is only a human being's brain being tricked into giving up their credentials. There's a technical flaw there, in my opinion, that you can actually use the password more than once. If it was a one-time password, it wouldn't if be it quite was. so bad. <laughs> well, I mean, that's... <laughs> so I think, there are, I think there are still ways to protect against that with two-factor authentication. That is, if you, you, you can give away all you want in terms of password information, but if they don't have the proper device, mm. you wouldn't be able to get in, so it, it provides a, a level of protection. I, you know, I, I think there's a, a lot, my personal opinion is if we, if we think that way, that if we strive for the users don't have to know how to protect themselves, we'll be in a much better position than if we just sort of, you know, kind of give up and say, it's the user's fault. Yeah. So, I don't, Troy, what do you think about that? Do you think uh, education is sort of our stopgap measure for the lack of technology, or, or is it always going to be we have to have users that know what they're doing, increasingly more technical. I think it all just shows that it's a very nuanced discussion, isn't it? You know, yeah. we, we don't have a lot of absolutes here, and it's got to be a combination of, of building robust services, of training users, uh, of building mm -hmm. services that expect the users to do the wrong thing, because this is what, what happens, you know, this is, this is mm -hmm. fallible humans. Uh, and then, you know, we, we sort of touched on even the configuration side, you know, the, the, the folks administering the environments, the IT pros, uh, the whole thing is, is a very sort of interlinked fabric. And w one of the, the, the sort of uh, alarming aspects of this is that we as people building systems have to get everything right, those just building and protecting. We, we've got to get the, the whole box and dice uh, right. And those wanting to break in have only got to get one thing right. <laughs> and when they get that wrong thing, one thing right, you know, it's, it's a bad day for us. So 
So it's, it's just going to remain um, a, a very sort of complex environment that, uh, that frankly, I, I don't see really getting much better anytime soon either. You're absolutely right. You know, it, uh, and you, you point out it is a higher challenge to protect systems than it is to break into it because, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like you said, the attacker only has to find one thing wrong or only has to get one thing right from an attacker's point of view, whereas those defending it have to get all the things right. So. Very good point. So let's uh, hop over to the, perhaps you don't consider this to be the lighter side, Matt, but. I take this very seriously, Brian. You take, I know you Absolutely. do. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I've seen your detailed notes. But, um, you know, uh, and, and Troy, by the way, you might want to hold your ears, maybe perhaps cover your eyes. I don't know if you can do that at the same time, but we're going to talk a little bit about Mr. Robot, mm -hmm. episode, actually season two. and. Uh, so Matt, give us the uh, give us a scoop. What's what's cool? Sure. Um, and also, just so I'm, I think Troy's probably glad he's in Australia because I've got a USB stick and I'm going to be sending spoilers <laughs> to several machines in the vicinity. Okay. Um, so just be aware of that. Um, so again, spoilers. Uh, so episode two point six, they call it successor. Mm -hmm. P twelve. Um, I love those names. They're all file extensions. Um, so the, one of the first things that happens in the episode is. Um, Trenton uses the stage fright exploit against Mobley while they're in the cafe, which I thought was great. Yeah. And I, I was surprised to learn that .sh. With a little social engineering. With involved. a little social engineering, <laughs> that, which was really cool. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, of course, he, he gets, you learn suddenly you know, when, when Darwin shows up, she's like, oh, that old trick. And I love that. <laughs> um, and .sh, which they used, is actually a top-level domain, which yeah. is a little interesting because it's also the extension for a shell script. Yeah. So, um, Found that interesting. The FBI conference call recording session was interesting. Mm -hmm. A um, little piece of history there that did happen. Yep, and it, it sounded like conference calls had been on where people just announced who they are, but they mm -hmm. didn't validate didn't everybody validate, on the call, yes. which I think has become standard practice over mm -hmm. the years. It was interesting that they used FFmpeg, which is a known encoder software to encode their their, their latest F Society video and upload mm -hmm. it to Vimeo, and they used it during the Tor browser, so nice job, guys. When they were hacking into the lawyers' accounts, Using methods like password resets is absolutely a way that people will do this. Remember, I think the mm -hmm. Matt Honan hack was one of the biggest profile versions of this, where someone managed to completely take over his Twitter account and wipe mm -hmm. all of his Apple devices. So this is a case where they broke into the email account first mm -hmm. and then used that to reset passwords to get into to other get accounts. to other accounts. We just talked about that a little bit ago, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. The eCoin payment looks a lot like a lot of some of the Bitcoin wallets we've seen. So that was pretty legit. Good job. Mm -hmm. Uh, FBI made a reference to using the Wayback Machine to find uh, Mobley's old DJ site when he was on Angel Fire, mm -hmm. which brings me back back to when I was like middle school when Angel Fire was the big place to have a website, yeah. which was cool. Uh, and the last thing in this episode that was technical was um, Mobley sends a five-second wicker, which is messages that expire to Trenton, then reboots his phone to a custom ROM and wipes it, and all this stuff is just awesome. So <laughs> all in all, good ratings for technical expertise right. on this episode. You know, what I think ago, is right? interesting. Uh, when you were in middle school? Shh. <laughs> How old do you think I am? Uh, so what I think is actually interesting about all of this is that on the one hand, you kind of feel like it's glamorizing the hacking, you know, trade a little bit. Mm -hmm. But the FBI is right on their tails. So. That, that is a good point that a lot of the things that are happening, despite their technical expertise, they're being tripped up by dumb things, like Mobley using a name that he used on his Angel Fire account years right. ago as his hacker handle, and then Dom showing up and basically wait, you know, rubbing it in his face and saying, right. I know who you are. I can't prove it yet, but I know who you are. And, and that seems to be her, her modus operandi, is, is finding the little places where people have slipped up. Mm -hmm. so well, I, and that's, that's ultimately what it comes down to. Is mm -hmm. you, it's, it's, it, it's the case where now the investigator only has to find one mistake ah, that I the see. hackers make. Interesting. That's a nice way of turning it around. Yeah. So, uh, episode 2.7, init5.fvv, which I thought was a great little reference. Elliot gets out of jail, and the first thing he mentions is we're back at init5, which mm -hmm. for people familiar with the Linux run levels, init5 is multi-user mode with a GUI. And he says, I should be, you know, should, the colors should have returned, things still seem gray. I was like, that's, that's an interesting, I like that. Yeah. So, I was excited about that. So, were you as surprised as I was that he was in jail? There was something really methodical about his lifestyle, and I couldn't put my finger on it until. So there were some there were some hints, and if you go back and look at a, an old Reddit thread, somebody is like, "Oh, he's doing everything methodically, and you know, he's always doing is watching basketball." I bet you he's in prison. And everyone's like, yeah. "That's just silly. Yeah, that can't be silly. right." Uh, but eventually, it proved to be true. So yeah. 
nice work. Um, the Angela had her rubber ducky tool still, um, mm -hmm. and that's running Mimikatz, accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, but she logged on as her target when she'd gotten the credentials from her own personal machine. Mm -hmm. So again, oops. oops. There's <laughs> going to be a lot of oops. Angela keeps making oopses. Um, she's yeah. not well trained, she's but she's, <laughs> she's definitely dedicated, so that's cool. Yeah. The Pony Express Pone Phone made an appearance. It had a, a tool which I don't think exists in the real world called Cracksim. Mm. And a few of us were talking about how this might possibly have worked, but it seems like they were able to listen in on phone calls from another phone without any access to the SIM card of the other phone. It might have been a fudge uh, for the show just to have the, for the plots. But um, I don't know. Are you familiar with anything that might make that possible? Well, there was a 60 Minutes article about vulnerabilities in Nessus 7, but I don't think that uh, I don't think that's played into this. Yeah, this, that wouldn't have, have been something you could do from example. a handset either, would it? No, yeah. I didn't know. Absolutely not. So okay. this, um, at, I think they 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 if, did what they needed to do to for further the, the plot. <laughs> yeah, and that's fair. Yeah, <laughs> it's not accurate, but it's all right. Right. Um, and uh, they used a real-time translation.net website, which actually does exist. And that was kind of interesting to watch that being used to translate the audio from Chinese mm -hmm. into English. And that was a big part of the plot this week. And I'll, I'll try to avoid spoiling that bit, but that was really cool. All right. And also, I made a note to myself, if anyone knows where I can buy one of those dark army masks, they're really growing <laughs> on me. They're pretty cool. They're, they're, they're coming out with a, a, you know, a lot of little peripheral things associated with the program. So mm -hmm. they're going to have to be available one way or another. So. All right. Well, Troy, hopefully it didn't ruin anything for you. And uh, if you get a chance to watch that program, you know, have a blast with it. Let's take a look at the internet weather for the last week or so here. And the first thing I wanted to kind of make a note of is, a, I mean, this is generating an increasing frequency of alerts in terms of the number of probes on uh, port 8545 TCP. Now, 8545 TCP, I don't think is registered, formally registered to a specific application, but I did find references to Ethereum which is a, uh, a cipher block chaining. Mm -hmm. not, that's that's that's. Uh, it, it uses the blockchain. It's, it uses a blockchaining. It's an interesting thing, and I've I've heard it referred to as a cryptocurrency, but it's also been used by this group, the DAO, Distributed Autonomous Organization, for some sort of voting or or mm. making autonomous decisions based on all the members electronically. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting, um, but I can't say I'm an expert. Yeah, so it's apparently being used for perhaps some different types of applications, which is cool. That's a, you know, that technology has been generally used for currency, but the uh, significance here is that application apparently can be breached mm -hmm. with, um, with, through this port if some certain configurations are made on the, uh, in, in the software itself. Uh, so that's a port that gives you access into the application. Uh, in any case, the, um, the source of this probing activity is a single IP address in the Czech Republic, and curiously, actually, this particular address only showed up very recently. I think it was actually in the last day or so. But there was a previous address in the Czech Republic, and then there was a previous address in the Czech Republic mm -hmm. uh, that kind of led up to what we're showing 90 days of activity here. So I'm not sure what the uh, bias is or the reason the Czech Republic is showing up, but the uh, three different addresses over the last 60 days over uh, more than one provider within that country. So. Keep in mind, if you're using that application, that there uh, is a possibility that, that port is accessible. Uh, looking at the top 10 most probed ports, top of the list here, as we've been consistently reporting for quite a number of weeks now, uh, is port 23 TCP, predominantly the uh, closed circuit television security surveillance camera DVRs. For some reason, they expose port 23 telnet to the internet and uh, make them accessible through default passwords. So it's a password guessing attack followed by port 80 TCP that's moved up a few notches. We're gonna take a little bit of a look at it, but not in terms of probes. Probes haven't changed that much, but we're gonna take a look at it in terms of the number of sources that are probing port 80 TCP. Followed by 22 TCP, which has uh, remained pretty stable. 53, 413 UDP, we'll take a look at that a little bit later on. Followed by 3389, that's remote desktop protocol. Then 443 TCP, that's HTTPS. 445 TCP, it's a staple on the, uh, on the graph here, followed by 53 UDP, 1911 TCP, which is a uh, basically industrial control application, and then uh, lastly on the, in the top 10, uh, port 21 TCP, that's uh, file transfer protocol, which uh, has actually moved down a couple of slots. Taking a look at 
uh, I don't I show this occasionally the top 10 ports aggression factor now this is taking basically the ratio of the number of probes that we're seeing divided by the number of sources that we see doing that probing so it's roughly measuring how many probes per device or per IP address that are, are taking place and curiously the uh, port 1911 TCP is way at the top here uh, that's actually generally associated with research groups not the aggression factor but the uh, the probing that's on that port is generally associated with a research group that is basically looking for vulnerable systems that are out there for uh, documentation purposes I don't consider it to be malicious activity because they are doing uh, what I would describe as pseudo-legitimate research, and it is kind of driven out of a university, so they've probably done a lot of work to optimize how they're doing that probing activity. Whereas, curiously, the port 23 activity is almost the lowest, yeah, it's almost the lowest, it's not the lowest, in terms of um, uh, efficiency or aggression factor, and that may be because it is actually IoT type devices that are relatively small processors, they're trying to do their normal duty activities and might be uh, just a little bit slower trying to uh, do that probing. And they Perhaps might not, not be optimized. on a dedicated internet connection like a server or a research project would. Uh, might be on DSL connections yeah, that's a possibility. They may be on, on slower connections and so uh, perhaps a little bit slower in terms of delay and uh, perhaps not as efficient at uh, making those connections. Good point. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, port 23 is really taking up a good portion. It looks like about 75% of the uh, number of sources that are probing there. And that accounts for on the order of about 622,000 unique sources that we saw on September 5th. That was yesterday, Labor Day in the United States here. Followed by 445 TCP. Um, and then we have some P2P ports. We see 53413 showing up on the list here as well. Kind of interesting in itself and pretty standard. So digging in a little deeper, we're showing six months of data here. That is uh, the hourly counts uh, over the six month period. Top graph showing the number of probes on port 23 TCP. And then the bottom graph showing the number of sources doing that probing. And there's a, you know, there's a rough correlation between the number of probes and the uh, number of sources that are doing that probing. Surprise, surprise. So we can see that there was clearly a big growth activity over the last six months. That was in addition to the growth of activity that took place before six months ago. Over the last um, you know, week or so here, two weeks, we have actually seen a little bit of a decrease in the activity. Perhaps folks are going back to school. Perhaps the uh, botnets you know, sufficiently grown so that they're uh, being able to perform the activities that they want to perform with that botnet and uh, have just suspended their recruiting activity. So nevertheless, still a huge number of sources that are doing that probing on the order of what well, looks like 200,000 sources in a given hour that we're detecting. And like I said, 622,000 over the course of a day. Looking at the next graph here, as I mentioned, on port 80 TCP, uh, this is web traffic over the last six months. There was an event in May, this is looking at the number of, again, the number of sources that are probing. We saw a big spike in the number of sources on port 80. Now, it's relatively small compared to some of the other. So this is uh, on the order of about 30,000 sources. And it has sort of a telltale sort of decay associated with it. That's generally indicator of a botnet, the fact that they all started probing at the same time and that decay activity. Uh, what I think is interesting to note is the number of sources that we see today is still significantly higher than what we saw before May. So that botnet has not gone away. It's still uh, well in existence and uh, something that um, we should be uh, continuing to pay attention to. All right, next one here. Scan probes and sources on port 53413 UDP. This is a sort of a staple in our, in our reporting activities. This particular one is associated with a backdoor on Netis home routers. Uh, if you send a, basically a packet with a script in the packet, basically in text form, uh, the uh, device will try to execute that script, shell script. And uh, we're looking at the last 90 days of activity here. The good news is the amount of sources doing the probing and the amount of probing is down significantly over the last couple of weeks. You know, hopefully it'll stay down. I don't think anything has been done to fix these devices or perhaps eradicate the botnet. Uh, and this is a pretty strong indicator, by the way, that it's really just one botnet or one group that's, uh, that's been taking advantage of this. Uh, otherwise, you'd see a, a little more sta stability in the activity. So, uh, you know, hopefully that's been uh, put to rest, but uh, I'm not going to hold my breath and we'll keep an eye on this one as well.
And then I think last year, the scan source is on port 3389 TCP. This is remote desktop protocol. This activity has been relatively stable. We're looking at the last 90 days of activity. Clearly, it hasn't really changed that much. Although I wanted to point out that over the last couple of weeks or so here, I guess starting about the uh, third week in August, there are a handful of spikes in activity, and this is looking at the number of sources that are doing the probing. So uh, it is, again, an indicator when you have lots of addresses doing the same thing at the same time, uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, the other thing that I observed from this, just looking at the source addresses that are doing this probing activity, is in contrast to like the port 23 activity, where you mostly see you know, consumer addresses or small business addresses that are doing it. This is a case where we're predominantly seeing cloud services uh, that are performing this activity, suggesting that, you know, folks are perhaps setting up cloud service instance using RDP for access into that instance and not sufficiently protecting that RDP access and consequently having it compromised and being turned into, uh, you know, part of a botnet. If you're using cloud, uh, that's one of the things you're definitely going to want to be paying attention to. So that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find ATT Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel, YouTube, as well as an audio podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. And, uh, well, Troy, I'd like to uh, thank you for joining us today. And, Troy, what is your website? That's easy, TroyHunt.com. Everything right. laid in from there. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward, right? And uh, once again, thank you for joining us today. Really enjoyed the conversation. And um, get out there and train more people to do it right. Because uh, if we can prevent the security problems, we don't have to uh, work so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you, Manny, for joining us today. Thank you, Matt. Sure. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then... Keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.